Hello, this is Matt Marone, the worship pastor here at Glenon Bible Church. You're listening to the Next Level Podcast. Today, we're going to answer listener questions from Sunday, June 4th, 2023. Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, the adult ministers pastor here at Glenon Bible Church. I'm John Foster. I serve as care and outreach pastor. And I'm Kelly Brady. I'm the senior pastor at Glenon Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to the Next Level Podcast. Good morning. Good morning. And welcome, John Foster. JFO in the house. Yes. Good yeah. to have you. John, did you enjoy Papa Creek yesterday preaching? I enjoy those people a lot. Yeah. And I get some uh, free farming tips when I'm up there as well. You mentioned that. What's that about? They helped me with my garden. Last time I was up there, they said you need straw or hay to keep the weeds away, and I went and purchased it. <laughs> How is your garden? We love garden topic. We talk uh, a lot about gardening. <laughs> hot peppers oh are about ready to be eaten. I can't believe you get hot peppers. Thanks. I've never had success oh, with hot peppers. man. Yes. They're my favorite. And uh, we also have strawberries up already. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Ours aren't ready to eat, but you can see them. Yep. Yeah. The birds are ready, so we have to get them soon because either the yeah, birds sure. or the squirrels take them. Yeah. yeah. Now, I'm not 100% about the hay preventing the weeds thing. You do it between the aisles, it's better than Oh, nothing. I know. Yeah. I get it. I know the concept. I'm just skeptical. Do you ever use your grass clippings? I use grass clippings. Does it work? Perfectly. Really? Yeah, I pile it 12 inches high. Nothing yeah. gets through. I don't use... Oh, you use it like mulch, then, yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. I can't use my grass clippings because I put uh, fertilizer on my lawn. Uh, I don't want to put that in the garden. You know what I do, too? <laughs> Wait a minute. I think we're kidding somewhere here. That is why you're developing a third eye. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I never thought of that. Yeah, man. John, it's those... really good to have you on the podcast. Yeah. What is this, number 250? <laughs> this is my first appearance, folks. Let's see, 276. 276. 276, and perhaps my last appearance. John Foster's bowling average. No He's one. a beast. I've yeah. been telling people I'm organic, and now I'm actually not organic. No. Very non-GMO over there. You're not a purist. Maybe that's why your, your garden is growing so well, because it it's got really poop is, in it. Yeah, it's thriving. <laughs> but, hey, the fertilizer we use is, is uh, organic. So now that I'm thinking about it, on our grass. Well, I thought, uh, man, I thought you did a great job yesterday. Thank you. Um, great message. Very clear, very personable. Um, people responded well. I thought the whole, the whole service was great. Like, Agreed. Man, people sang out once again. Um, There's good energy, all those yeah. things. But Brendan was there. Brendan's sitting with us. What's up, Brendan? Um, he was there doing the welcome uh, area, right? I don't even know what do we officially call it. The welcome booth. The welcome booth. booth. It's not quite a booth, but currently. <laughs> we had a core team meeting for Poplar Creek families, uh, Glowing Bible Church families, to go to Poplar Creek. Uh, the core team meeting was second service here at Glowing Bible Church yesterday. And so we're trying to gather some steam, get some families this fall to go up uh, from 501 Hillside, the Glowing campus, up to 300 East Schick Road, the Poplar Creek campus, to help with just building momentum in attendance. Um, how, how was attendance yesterday? Probably it's average. Decent. Yeah, I'd say it's about average. Yeah, it's we're about averaging average. about 70 in attendance, which is great. And it's a little below. Yeah, we have, yeah. we have 150 chairs up there. We'd like to see those chairs filled uh, this fall. So Yeah. I went down after service to grab the kids out of kids' ministry. They were downstairs playing soccer, full-out soccer. Indoors? It indoor. It was <laughs> <Nice>. awesome. <laughs> nice. 
That's good. With tackling. It was, yeah. it was Jesus soccer, though, right? Totally. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what that is. On so, Sunday. Some Bible lesson yeah. from soccer, no doubt. Yeah. That was great. No, I mean, it was at the end of service, so I'm sure they were done with all their programming. and Those people are warm, inviting. Hey, you know, the nice thing about like yesterday was uh, John Foster preached 31 minutes as opposed to Matt Marone the previous week at 46 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> I did that. Yikes. I did that. Oh. When I practiced, it was 29 minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah. It, it's always I, easy to I go I added longer. a whole minute. I stopped practicing, so that way I don't feel bad if I go over. <laughs> Grant, how did it feel for you yesterday? Did yeah, you sense the Holy Spirit at work? Yeah, I did. Um, okay, so this is the behind the scenes, I guess, how the sausage is made a little bit. Oh, no. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, but I, w- I worked on sermon stuff all week long, had one I kind of liked Thursday, came in Friday, was writing, wrote a brand new one because I didn't like Thursdays anymore. And Saturday morning, I'm up early thinking. And I was like, I just, something wasn't clicking for me. Yeah. So I was praying, God, I just, I want this to serve you. I, it, something that resonates uh, differently than it, uh, than it had so far. And... Um, yeah, something clicked, and I came in on Saturday morning, wrote it all up, and just felt like this is exactly what the Lord had for me to say for the congregation. Um, and I think based on the response, I saw that it was really meaningful for good. quite a few people. I've gotten a good number of texts, and people came up afterwards and said, you know, they felt like I was speaking to them through it. So, yeah. Um, good. Yeah, it was maybe the most fun I've had, maybe the best I felt post-sermon. Yeah, um, there should be joy in our service, right? It, it, there should be. Yeah. So, yeah, I like it when you say it, it was fun, and yeah. especially with chapter fifty-three of Isaiah. As you say, what oh, a great yeah. passage to, yeah, to preach. Good point. Yeah, it's uh, it was nice coming out of all the judgment stuff. Definitely easier to preach. It was almost like, well, what what exactly do I say? Because there's lots yeah. of good things that can yeah. be said. Yeah, I easily could have done that in thirty minutes. Easily. Matt. <laughs> Isaiah 53. Easy. <laughs> I just went to AI and punched it in. I said I need 29 good minutes. There you go. Chat GPT. Just, yeah. All right. Um, it was, yeah, it sounds like both services were great. However, it started off a little heavy, right? We had a heavy week. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that kind of gets us into this first question, yeah. too. So why don't we go ahead and dive into some questions and the first one up, and then the rest will be, um, you know, sermon-focused. Uh, so the first one, I'm so thankful that something was said in worship about the death of Hudson Singley. I needed help processing it. I feel so overwhelmed. I have so many questions. Do babies who die go to heaven? And what do I say to my kids about Hudson Singley's death? It is a it is a heavy start to the podcast. It was a heavy start to the worship here at Glow yeah. Bible Church yesterday. So we can give a little context just for yeah the Singley family. Folks. The Singley family were longtime members um, at Glow Bible Church, and they have four children. The youngest of which did not wake Thursday morning. Uh, a five year old boy named Hudson, and so. Tragic and terribly difficult for our church family. We feel many in the congregation are deeply connected with the Singley family. In fact, um, several in our congregation are on the front lines of supporting them. I I said to somebody recently that um, our area is a great area 
place in which to suffer. There's lots of support, uh, lots of um, the one another's of the New Testament. Um, so you, the singlies are getting lots of support, but there's still a tremendous amount of grief and shared grief. You know, when one hurts, we all hurt. Uh, when one cries, uh, biblically, we're to, we're to bear each other's burdens and to suffer together, just as we're to rejoice together. And so um, I know that a lot are asking these types of questions. So uh, I'll get into it a little bit. You guys chime in as you want. Um, the first question is, do babies who die go to heaven? So a five-year-old is still in the category of a, a very young soul. And um, I, when uh, people ask me that question, um, I typically say, uh, I don't know for sure. The Bible just doesn't address it directly. Uh, it, there, there isn't a, a passage or verse or chapter of scripture that says, here's the hope we have when we lose young children. It's not di addressed directly. I do have an answer though. So while I can't say I know for sure, I do have an answer that I offer and I, it's an informed answer. I believe babies who die uh, do go to heaven um, based on King David's response to losing his young son. David was, King David was extremely upset while his, as his child was sick, um, this uh, newborn child. It's Second Samuel chapter 12, and so you can read it. He fasted as the child was sick, hoping he wept uh, and was largely inconsolable as he was crying out to God to save his child. And when the child died, uh, upon the child's death, he, David got up, he washed his hands, and he went to the temple for worship. In other words, he was done mourning, and that really surprised people. Like, your child died, aren't you sad? And he says to them, um, that you know he can't bring the child back. But he says, uh, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. In other words, I will see him again. And so there, there, there was this thought apparently for King David or by King David, I will see my deceased infant son again. And so based on that, if King David had hope that he'd see his child again, then I think we can have hope that we'd see our deceased children again. And I, but it's not just King David's response. I also believe uh, that babies who die go to heaven, based on the character of God. And, and so when we don't know for sure the answer on a tough topic like, like this one, then we can stand on what we do know for sure. And we do know that God is good and loving and fair and just. And so I, I believe that, that babies that die before what has historically been called the age of accountability— when they can make a volitional decision about whether to accept Christ or continue without him, if they die before that age of accountability, I believe they go to heaven. And I think we can say to our children, um, here's what I would say, and have actually said now to my children when loss has been suffered uh, of this size, I've said long before Hudson Singley was even born, God provided eternal life for all those who would have faith in Christ. And that's good news. In other words, God knew we're in pain here and God provided a hope and has provided a way through the death of Christ 
for eternal life. Apart from Christ, uh, you know, what would we do in this day and age? What hope would we have? So God has provided in his goodness and his love. It's good. It was a heavy day. I mean, it's been a heavy week, but, um, uh, we, so we, we got a text from the pastors here at GBC, just a text pastor just kind of letting us know what happened. And from one of the other pastors here and, I mean, I just, uh, immediately reached out to, uh, one of the GBC families that are very close with the Singleys. And, um, at the time he actually, um, was watching their other kids. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I just, we just started talking, got out about two or three words and just started, I just started weeping. Yeah. He was weeping. He was trying to keep it together. Yeah. Um, but my, my kids were, were right there. They yeah. were right next to me. And so, um, so I wanted to speak into that a little bit. Um, I don't know if this is psychologically the right thing to do. I'm sure you could probably, if you, whatever direction you wanted to go, I'm sure you could probably find research to back it up. I don't know. But um, the interesting thing is after we processed it with our kids, I did read a couple articles uh, from Focus on the Family about kids and grief and how to share. And I was like, did that, did that, did that. It was all, to me, it's all common sense stuff. Mm -hmm. We, um, and and I'm assuming some of this question is, how do you even, Talk to your kids mm-hmm. uh, about when something like this happens, and and my kids are young. I have a five year old. Yeah. Um. I have a, a you know a nine year old and an eleven year old. Um. I think it's important for your kids to see you grieve. Um. You know, one of the one of a lot of parents, uh, especially in this particular situation that we've talked to, will, will just like, man, I'm just gonna wait. I don't know. I don't know how to what to say yet. I'm just gonna wait. The interesting thing about this article is it said you should share as soon as possible. Hmm. Um, and I'm sure different situations maybe play out differently. Um, but I think the gist of it was it's important to grieve together. Hmm. Um, and my kids did grieve. like they. But your family was somewhat entwined with the Singley family. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Our, our, Y'all uh, were on the soccer team Our youngest teams together. played on the soccer team with them last so it was coming up for your family. Right. We were yeah. talking about doing a play date and whatever. Yeah. And yeah. So, so yes, so there is, there's that in play, but, um, you know, we just, I just held, held the boys and grieved and, yeah. um, and cried and we all cried. And I think that's healthy for your kids to see their father grieve and cry. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, later on in the day, you know, and, I didn't feel I didn't feel the need to qualify it in the moment. Like mm. we're grieving, but but Jesus is good and God is good. Like I, it's like yeah. we just sat and wept and cried and had questions and and then later on we did talk about um, the reality of of God's love. Yeah, um, Paul writes about we grieve, but not as those without hope. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, your kids are going to see you grieve no matter what. The question is whether it's public or hidden. That's a good so, word. Like to your point. I want to teach them how to grieve. You're teaching them how to grieve. The right. question is, are you teaching them the right way or a more open or... Uh, a hopeless grief or a hidden grief or yeah. hope-filled yes. grief. Yeah. 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 I mean, geez, my, my parents admitted to me later on in my adult life that they would, um, and they divorced when I was younger, but they would fight because I had no idea that they... That there, there was, was troubles? That there was troubles because they would <laughs> wait until my sister and I were asleep yeah. to engage in conflict. So we never saw conflict. We never saw healthy 
we, ne- we never saw conflict of any kind, really, from our parents. And so we never, as a result, we never saw a resolution. We never yeah. saw, so I grew up kind of anytime I would see conflict, it was a bad thing. It was like, yeah. okay, stay away from that. Don't, right. You know, that's only going to lead to bad, Right. you know? And so I kind of put this grieving thing kind of in the same category as I think it's healthy to do that in front of your kids and, you know, do it with them. And, and then, yes, the theological questions will come later on. At least they did for us. Like, you know, of course, why didn't God stop this? And why, you know, like yeah. you're going to have to answer those questions. I think that's probably a fear for a lot of parents that they won't have the right answer. And I don't know. What do you guys think? If somebody is really sick um, or if there is a death, there's a thousand things to say wrong. And I think sometimes people hold back because they're afraid that they will say the wrong thing. And then others, um, there's very, like, there's a thousand things to say wrong. I think there's maybe three things to say correctly. Yeah. So it's harder to say the right thing. Uh, but rather than saying nothing at all, to ignore is not helpful. Yeah. And uh, a lot of times when I deal with people in grief, it's part of my job that when they offer an explanation, such as you said, well, they'll be in heaven, so it's going to be okay at the wrong time. That's a truth, but not at that moment to be yep. shared. Mm-hmm. They're really solving it for themselves. Because for one, the first response is always, I wanna help. How can I help? Well, I want to help because I want to feel better because I don't like this. And sometimes I want to offer solutions because I have questions. This brings up my own questions about God. And I think it's um, wise to solve the situation for yourself in your own mind and be limited in your words, but offer scripture, prayers, hugs. And I know there have been groups sitting uh, with the singlies for hours at a time. Mm. And I think that's a very good uh, way to help handle grief. Yeah, to be present is its own answer. I'm here with you. I I can't solve this, but I am here. I'll join you in your grief. Sure. Cry with those who cry. I actually yeah. think that's maybe one of the most significant things we can do, just that ministry of presence to allow mm-hmm. them to be who they are, <clears throat> experience all the things they're experiencing, knowing community is around them that will carry them along, will take care of uh, whatever they're going through, having friends who've gone through some s- different but somewhat actually similar scenarios. Um, you know, years back looking at it, they they said just people showing up, sitting in our living room mm-hmm. yeah. for, for days on end, not forgetting, you know, because yeah. it's easy for us to kind of like... Life goes on. Right. This yeah. night, end yeah. of the next week, I'm kind of like in the next thing, but to continue just being there, um, yeah, can make an enormous difference. And so many of us have moved from our town of origin. Mm-hmm. Unlike the singlies, they have the support right here. It's especially challenging when someone loses a mom, a dad, a sister, or a brother, or a cousin in Michigan. Yeah. Uh, because when you come back from Michigan, you are thinking about one thing. And you are hurting, and life moves on. And that's a, a difficulty. Yeah. I remember when my mom passed away and I came back here, someone, well-meaning, just said, oh yeah, how'd that go and all? My mom died, and this is what you're saying to me, how'd that yeah. go and all? I. Yeah, I didn't really have an answer for that. Yeah. You know, some folks just, they don't know what to say. They get tongue-tied and they say the first thing that pops up, yeah. and, you know, because they feel like they need to say something. Yeah. Um, 
I, I've had a, some li- good life lessons over the last four or five years in grief. Um, just to say, it's, it's funny. I, before I would have thought like to say, I'm sorry, just doesn't feel quite, I don't know. Like just, actually it's very comforting just to say, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I watched the response when my mother-in-law passed away a couple of years ago and my wife's super, super close with her mom and just watched how our, our inner circle of family responded and then the next circle and the next circle. And, um, it was just really interesting to see the, the range of responses and the, the time lapses of some responses. Like, cause some people feel like I'm just going to give them time and I'm not going to say anything for like a week cause I'm going to, I'm just going to stay out. And I used to be that way. I used to think like, okay, that's a healthy thing. No matter sure. how close I am to them, I'm just going to keep my distance because it's not about me and I don't I want to give them space. Um, I don't know that that's a healthy outlook. I think, my personal opinion, I think you should reach out ASAP and just say, man, I'm so sorry. I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. And it just that's it. Um, it yeah. was very comforting for my wife to receive those messages mm-hmm. in the moment, even when she was at the height of her grief. Yeah. Like, She's not on her phone checking them, but she may see them a day or two later or whatever. And it was comforting to know, like, wow, that person reached out right away. Like, that's really cool. Yeah. And those in grief, we're all old enough to have faced some grief. But those, those who are grieving um, realize that those who are expressing care can't fix it for them. They're not expecting uh, their grief, um, they may be deeply distraught, even angry, but they're not actually expecting us to fix it. We'd love to, John was right, we'd love to fix it. We want to come with a fix. We want to feel better. We hate that they're feeling this way. But I like what, Matt, what you said, that something as simple as I'm so sorry. Yeah. Just expressing care and, and concern yeah. is, is profound. Yeah. I think yeah. it, lastly, I think... Um, what people, especially when, when it's intense grief, mm-hmm. like what's going on, mm-hmm. um, folks in that situation, um, making decisions is really difficult. Mm-hmm. So if you do want to help out in tangible, physical ways, um, don't send a text asking, do you want this or that? Or mm-hmm. what can I do? Like, yeah. just go do something, just grab it and just drop it off. Yeah. You know, if it's a gift card or a food yeah, or like, whatever. Let me like, know if I can help. <laughs> is well-meaning. Yeah. No, totally. It's just so unhelpful in that moment of like, I'm, I'm probably not going to reach out. And no, like, I'm, not, I'm not. I don't have the headspace, right, right, right? To think through the things I need. Yep. And so, um, so yeah, not bring a bag of groceries by. John mentioned that the Singleys grew up in the community. They do have immense support. Yeah. Uh, so people have been asking, I, um, you know, how can, what, what best can I do? And uh, I would, I would say support the supporters. There are a couple families that are closest to the Singleys that are yep. uh, carrying the lion's share of the load. So supporting them would be great. Yeah. All right. Let's um, move into the next question. And I was wondering if we would get this question in when John Foster <laughs> mentioned this in his sermon. <laughs> um, it's so, a weird turn of phrase. It, it is. Honestly, like I, I think maybe the first time I heard it was like eight or nine years ago, the right. concept of it. And I was just like, what? The first time I heard it was in grad school. Really? Yeah. 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 yeah I, was just, I don't know. So, but, but yeah, let's talk about it here. Here's the question. What is, quote, divine child abuse? Pastor John mentioned it, and I'd never heard of it before. Do some people really believe 
that about Jesus's death? Okay, can you guys unpack it a little bit, talk yeah. about what that concept is? At least to contextualize a bit, um, this is specifically in reference to the theological concept of substitutionary atonement, right? So, Which is what? Jesus uh, taking our place. Yes, Jesus go. stepping in for us, receiving the punishment that we deserve for sin. Um, that's put on him so that, you know, we talk about how horrible the crucifixion was, how excruciating it is. Um, and so Jesus opted into that. So the contextually, the divine child abuse is God the Father putting Jesus in that place, putting his wrath upon him. Uh, it's that father-son relationship. So that, that's how we get the, the divine child abuse part. But it's specifically related to his death on the cross for our sins. I think it also projects human motives. If, if I am involved in discipline, sometimes it's because I'm angry or I'm frustrated or I want to write something. It's, this was thought out. Um, it forgets that Christ was involved in the decision. It was planned long before it happened. It's a focal point of history. It's also um, that idea is becoming more popular. It's gaining momentum theologically, but um, it forgets a number of things about the character of God and even the the necessity of struggle. So I want to believe in a God who would do this. What's the other option? Almost, Uh, you know, we don't have to be flat-footed here. Oh yeah, wow, God's mean. For some, not for everyone, but I do think it's a smokescreen. It's just an excuse. Then I don't have to deal with God. He's an abuser. That, that's, not a, that's not how I would have done it. But I think Grant is correct on that. And it was, I believe, necessary, momentary, and in God's timing and not ours. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, <clears throat> from a theological standpoint, I think it's a fair question to ask and wrestle through. Um, yes. To say, you know, is there an alternative? What did, did Jesus have to die on the cross? Was there another way? And um, at least in my own process. Those are questions that we were asked during seminary classes um, and challenged on. Um, so it's worthwhile to, to look at it. And it's not historically, if we think about historic theology, um, substitutionary atonement has not always been the universal singular thought, um, but it has been a theme for a very, very long time. So there's other ideas about you know how atonement worked and kind of in response to uh, an alternative to what could be labeled divine child abuse by some. Um, so it's, it's interesting to study those things. And there's other, uh, maybe the best way to say it is facets of the atonement and what was going on. Um, but even towards Kelly's kind of point in uh, question one, it's not that there is an explicit answer that outlines it in terms of like a dictionary definition in the Bible, um, but there, at least the substitutionary part cannot be ignored, in my opinion, because there is so much scripture that is pointing to that concept specifically. So um, I think Foster's right when he says that divine child abuse is often used as a smokescreen to label God as mean, so that we we don't um, we have a barrier or a buffer or reason to reject. Uh, Christ's sacrifice and our obligation to submit thus thus to Christ. Um, there are 
there are several ways to think about atonement, but substitutionary atonement is a historic, it's a prime way um, to, to think about it. So I, I don't think there's any getting around that Christ suffered for us, took our place. Um, but at the same time, I like to remember that the Son of God is an equal member of the Trinity. He was sent by the Father, that's the Father's role, um, but he went willingly, John mentioned this. He, he chose, uh, for the, Philippians 2 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He um, let this cup pass from me, he prayed, but not uh, my will, yours. And so he willingly submitted. He processed uh, the call to go to the cross as a, a fully man and fully God and chose the cross willingly. Yeah. And I mean, even 53, Isaiah 53 says, you know, that humble endurance is actually one of the significant reasons why he will, um, he'll be delivered. Uh, in the end, he gets to see the, all the outcomes of his work. You know, yeah. it, it divide the spoils with the strong. I think it says um, that there is a reward for Christ in that um, piece of opting into the experience, enduring humbly. Um, there's a, a beneficial outcome for him too. It's, yeah, but that kind of what you were going, the path you were going down, it kind of, um, for me, makes the divine child abuse idea just empty, is that uh, it, it places such a heavy emphasis on there's a father and then there's a son. Subordination. And that's not the case. That's not the, the father case. is the son. The son is the father. Right. So this is as much a self-sacrifice as it is uh, a son sacrifice, although it, it is both. Yeah. It is both, but, it, but it's not one or the other. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do think that there was a, there was a separation at one point uh, on some level, so I would think. Separation of? At the death, like... Between father and son? Yeah, like that there was some kind of... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right, right. Over the issue of but, their But Jesus bearing. still is yeah. God, and it, they still God. are one. So, yeah. you know, like, yeah. I just think that... That, that for that reason alone, I think the divine child abuse idea falls apart. Yeah. Yep. So. Good question. And, and yeah. frankly, I think it is something that uh, deep thinkers are going to come to face. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, so I understand why uh, we've wrestled with this. Yeah. So. Well, especially when Jesus asked to have it taken away. Right. Yeah. You know. But at the same time, shows an awesome example of just saying, but you're well done, not mine. It's awesome. And it brings us to a, a, a more clear picture of Christ, mm -hmm. and I have a greater appreciation mm -hmm. of what happened as a result, as with yeah. any of the critical arguments or thoughts related to Scripture. Mm -hmm. I wonder, before we end on this question, it just kind of hit me, if it, um, when we only talk about it being substitutionary, maybe that's part of what makes it uh, feel like it's not quite satisfactory, right? Like Christ doing that demonstrates his great love for us. It's an example of how we should live, something worth imitating. Like there's, in my opinion, the substitution was happening on the cross and there was other things happening as well that oh we can, gosh. we can celebrate. Yeah. Um, so if we only talk about it in that, like, you know, punishment way that can maybe skew our understanding of what's going on, um, because it only gives us a partial picture. So if you're wondering, well, gosh, what are the other theories of atonement? They're fa fairly easy to, to Google, but there's the ransom theory. That is the theory that Adam and Eve enslaved us 
and Christ delivers us, or, and there's a Christus Victor um, a theory in which Christ, his death overcame evil. And these, having, if you sat in the Bible church for very long at all, you've, you've heard elements of each of these uh, realities of, of Christ's death in the atonement. He, he did ransom us. Uh, from the sin debt that we owed. He did overcome the powers of evil at work in the, in the world, uh, but he also took our place. So it's, it's the, it's the rans, uh, the theory of atonement is multifaceted, like a beautiful diamond. It, yeah. You get different elements of it as you look at it. Yeah. Hey, Glen Ellen Bible Church family, thanks so much for your consistent, diligent giving. I just want to remind you that as summer schedules change, and many of us are going on vacation here and there and having lots of summer fun, it's easy when we're going on vacation to think that the church is on vacation too. But the truth is there's lots of great programming going on at the church all summer long. We have junior hires going to Chicago and to Denver. We have high schoolers going to the Dominican Republic. We have a barbecue cookout for young families coming up. We have summer book clubs for women. We have summer nights for in July for families. And we'll close our summer with worship in the park on August 20th. So there's a lot happening in the church. So the truth is that the ministries of the church, the mission of God never goes on vacation. And so as you're considering your giving this summertime, make sure that you continue in your consistent, diligent, faithful giving to the church to support the mission that God has called us on. All right, um, let's go to the next one. This again is for Foster. Why would eunuchs have been excluded <laughs> from worship at the temple? I heard you say it was because they weren't full bodies, but I didn't understand what you meant. Grant said it as well, I think. I oh. did? Yeah. yeah. Okay, maybe yeah. this was for yeah. Grant. We kind of highlighted just the fact that, at least in my, in my sermon, um, I highlighted that the Ethiopian eunuch was excluded from the temple in Jerusalem, but ironically was a part of the inner court in Ethiopia. So just thinking about or imagining yeah. that contrast and how that must have felt to be an outsider in this one place huh. and a, like uber insider in the other place and have cool. power i mean an significant power yeah. yeah sure and then first peter it it says that as believers we are appointed to a priestly ministry mm-hmm. and uh i think it's interesting that the old testament would have excluded him but the son included him i love that yeah so deuteronomy just talks about the exclusion of certain uh impure uh, or corrupted, and so uh, people. So an impure person is someone that has exposed themselves to something that defiles. Uh, so for example, dead bodies. If you touched a dead body, you couldn't go to temple worship because you were impure and you had to go through a purif- purification process. Uh, but also if your body was corrupted in some way. And so a eunuch, either by choice, either against his will, or perhaps some eunuchs were born that way. Um, Jesus even mentions it in the Gospels. But um, eunuchs, because their bodies, they weren't full bodies or they were deformed bodies, not having uh, testicles, they were excluded from temple worship. Um, And again, um, it is beautiful, as John pointed out, uh, they couldn't enter the inner court. They could stand on the outside. And he had a copy of the Isaiah scroll, which actually means he was wealthy. Oh, there, yeah. He, he was for there, sure a wealthy It's man. not like Bibles today where everybody has two or three in their house. If you had a copy of the Isaiah scroll, dude, you had money. 
Huh. You had you had a bank account. Yeah, you were. He was flying on a private jet. Yes, reading. I love that's what you said. You yeah, know? he was the executive of his, of his day. Yeah, exactly. A Fortune one hundred company level executive who couldn't come into the inner courts of the temple, but God sent him Philip. Yep, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's really amazing. I love that Philip ran. Yeah, <laughs> ran up to the chariot. What are you reading? And then he disappears. If you yeah. go into Acts yeah, chapter that's eight, crazy. He yes. is transported bodily. Like yeah. in my generation, it was stu- it was Spock beam me up. Yeah, you know where your body is just morphed, and he found himself in a whole different location. We like to put it off. Well, he's the evangelist. You know, he knew Christ. The, His mind was blown as well. <laughs> the list of folks where that happened is very short. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, here's a, one question I have related to this. It's a, a, a tangent, but this is you know, going deeper stuff. It feels to me like there's enough reference to eunuchs in both the Old and New Testament. Was this a really common thing? Like, is there a ton of eunuchs walking around? Because personally, at least that I know of, I've never met one, right? And so I, but all I'm saying is, if it was- So many jokes, so little time. But but if if it was sufficient enough to mention even more than once, was that like culturally a much more common reality? Do you, I, Kelly, I don't know if you know or other guys. I, I, I think uh, it was common in some unique ways. So I want to say it was uh, uncommonly common. So, and here's what I mean. To serve in Biden's presidential camp, cabinet, you don't have to give up at that level. Sure, But sure. In, his, in the ancient world, I mean... Solomon had a harem. He had a, a number of concubines, um, even though it was prohibited, uh, the kings. But so he wanted, and you mentioned, you alluded to this, the kings of the ancient world and the queens, to be honest with you, didn't want any sexual competitors in their court. Sure. And so sure. the utilization of eunuchs and some were made eunuchs so that they could serve in the court without being perceived as a sexual competitor. And so it was definitely more common in the ancient world. Okay. That makes sense. And Absalom, when he wanted to fully insult his father, boom, this is huge. Yeah. Own his own kingdom. That's exactly what he did. He He slept with his father's concubines. It was a, Mm. it was a show of dominance and rebellion all in one. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. All right. Let's. Oh, um, Matt. Yeah. Real quick. Yeah. Um, the thing that really amazed me when Grant and I were talking about this last week was too that in, obviously in '52 we introduced the servant, and '53 how will he die? '54 talks about uh, the women and the barren women, especially that would come uh, as a result of this servant. '55 said for those that cannot afford. Uh, money for food or don't have access to water, they can come. And 56, especially verse 5, speaks directly of the eunuchs who would be allowed into God's presence by the suffering servant. And that's huge. Because one of the things that I uh, mentioned yesterday was the fact that this was a smart guy, pulled over the chariot. He's reading this script of Isaiah. There's no way he stopped after chapter 53. Gets baptized, Philip takes off. I'm sure he's stunned um, in a good way. And then he keeps reading. And, and I know that when he got to chapter 56 and that section, he's like, God thought of me. Hmm. 
And yeah. to me, that's, that's really personal. It's really powerful. Yeah, that was like kind of the main, one of the main thrusts of, um, in my sermon is just the specificity that God had naming him. And Both of you mentioned uh, that Isaiah 53 is often referred to as the fifth gospel because there's such clarity. I stole that from Grant. Well, it's good stuff. I'd never heard it before. I had never heard it before. Oh, really? Yeah. I remember it from school, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And then you get the sense of its power. But as John, as you both pointed out, there is this movement from 52, 53, 54, 55, and 56, where God is bringing this suffering servant and then he cares for all the suffering demographics. I mean, to be a barren woman in the ancient world, you, you were at risk socially. You, you could have been sent home to your father's household and rejected by your husband if you didn't have children. And then uh, to be a eunuch, you were outcast. You couldn't come into the inner interior of the temple. It, to be impoverished, you were at risk. And so it's as if the suffering servant, this this proto-evangelion, this, this forerunner to the gospel, and look, and then Isaiah lists, here are all the people that are going to be included, all these people that lived on the margins and were socially and spiritually at risk, they're going to be brought in. It's beautiful. It's powerful. That's where Israel failed, but yes. it makes clear that the suffering servant did not and will not fail. So even that interaction that he had with the eunuch was... Uh, symbolic of his victory. Uh, as a side note, um, I, I mentioned this part of the sermon uh, to two different women, both with tears in their eyes that I've wrestled with that. It's interesting mm-hmm. because um, I felt like there were some women at Gone Bible Church that were powerfully affected by the care expressed in, these pa- in this passage. Specific to them. Yeah. And yeah. they know the pain. They Praise know God. the hurt. They know the, I, I want to have kids. I want well, to raise a godly family or I want to even, be. A- even broader, I think that, that historically you could safely say, and I, you could safely say that culture has been the hardest on women. Women have suffered uniquely at a depth that, that men don't suffer. Uh, and even today, I would say the hardest place to be in, in the American suburban culture is to be a girl between the ages of 10 and 20. I, I think we are unbearably hard. It's hard to grow up as a young woman. I'd go 13 to 30 on yeah, that. Yeah. That's but definitely, yeah. definitely they're getting pounded. Yeah. Uh, one, one last thought. This is something I wanted to include, but you got to cut stuff at some point in the sermon. Um, and it's a little bit of a shameless plug, I suppose. Not for myself, though. Um, I really, really loved the eunuch's response to encountering God, to be baptized. And I, so I internally wanted to say, hey, we're going to baptize people in August. If you feel moved by God, whether it's today or another time, yeah, um, love it. When, when, when you're compelled by the Lord and it's, there's some kind of power there, um, that one of the natural responses or one of the responses we're invited into is to be baptized. Um, it's just this... It, to me, it was a really beautiful moment, um, and I, I felt myself wanting to invite people towards that, but didn't know how to do it well in the, the service. So here I am now. If, if God has moved you in such a way and you've not been baptized, um, we're going to do that worship in the park in August, and it, we would love to celebrate with you. I mean, Reach wanna, out to Grant. Yeah. It's one of my 
absolute favorite things of the church is is baptism. So yeah, and what a great what a great one to get baptized at because the entire the whole church it's a church both campus wide event outside in the park. There's going to be a lot of folks there. It would be a massive celebration. Man, it'd be fun. Yep. Yep. So I'm feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit, I think, to mention that if you're feeling marginalized, if you're listening and you feel like I'm, I'm on the margins spiritually, I, I can't, I'm different, I'm excluded, um, and that may be because you don't fit what you perceive to be the demographics of the church, or maybe you feel like, um, for whatever reason, maybe you feel too sinful. I just I want to make a plea um, that you trust Christ. All indications are that Christ came to include, and he calls everyone to himself. Come to me all. It's Matthew chapter 11. All you who are weary and heavy laden. So if, as, if you're feeling marginalized because of your sin or because of your poverty or because of um, your, it, it, maybe you've st- suffered failures, maybe there's acute incompetencies that's been, been revealed, maybe a business failure or relational failure, that's, man, don't stand on the margins. The, the church is a collection of people who have answered the call because they're tired and they're being received by Christ. That, that's who I am. That's who I am. I'm being, I'm, I've come to Christ weary and tired uh, of my own sin, the, my broken family of origin. And so I just want to make a plea that this is the very reason Christ came. Amen. All right, let's go to the next one for Grant. It was mentioned that the Jewish leaders and Christian leaders interpreted and used Isaiah 53 differently. How do we know that? What significance does that have? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So I guess I would start by saying we want to be careful when talking about the Jews or Israelites. Um, It's not a, in some ways, it's not a monolith, right? So, there was different groups of Jewish people. It's like there, denominations today. Exactly. Christian there, denominations. There's a full spectrum. And there's some groups that would... five major ones. Yeah. And there's some like Christian groups today who I'd be like, man, I, I, you and I are very different. And I don't want um, my label of Christianity to be connected to you. So uh, that can be true of this kind of just general um, when we talk about the Jews. So um, yeah, just wanting to be careful in that. That said... Um, at the time, the Jewish religious leaders, the ones who coordinated Jesus' death, those are the ones who especially um, interpreted it in this way. But the, they used the crucifixion to try to um, discredit Christ as the Messiah. That was the purpose of it, that a Messiah certainly could not be killed. So just from a pragmatic sense, we can tell, okay, they believed that Jesus couldn't be, that it was someone other. Um, and then there's lots of, um, actually, it, it, honestly, it's a pretty helpful stuff it, throughout the Old Testament. There's all kinds of uh, rabbinic commentary and uh, extra biblical sources that the Jews recorded and talked about what they thought, how they interpreted, what they believed around these different um, aspects of 
of uh, the Old Testament. So that's where we get to see it. The, the other element there is there's four different servant songs. Um, mm-hmm. There's one Isaiah 52, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53. Um, in the other three, there's this kind of collective sense, and it you can interpret it as this like uh, a collective idea. Um, so it's not crazy on the surface to think that 53 is using the singular to talk about a collective group. Um, it's, it was just a rhetoric style that existed. Um, but when we start to dig in a little bit more um, and try to understand how this is unfolding and looking, um, using the clues there and New Testament to say, hey, what, what might this mean? Um, there's actually some parts that don't make a ton of sense if it's a collective group being referenced, namely that uh, they're dying for sins, but they're the ones who are causing the sins that, that's like a circular type conversation. So um, based on that, and then when we get to see Jesus, his life in the New Testament, even the way Jesus referred to himself, actually, especially the way Jesus referred to himself um, using Isaiah 50 through 12, um, it is much clearer, I would say, with the privilege of history and being able to look backwards to say, actually, Jesus is a much better fit mm-hmm. as the uh, referent of Isaiah 53, a better fit than um, the Israelites as a whole. So, uh, okay, so that was the kind of Jewish-Christian differences. The other, in terms of the, the Christian um, interpretation and the significance, um, we can look at the church fathers, those who lived within a generation or two of Jesus and the uh, first apostles. They documented all kinds of things, wrote stuff out, and those are often helpful, at least for me when I'm going through some of these interpretive elements. Um, and I think about it like the game of telephone, you know, the closer you are to the first person in telephone, the more likely that the message you say is reliable or it's accurate. It's what that first person said. So the further away we get, the more chance there is for it to become convoluted. Um, but historically the church fathers had five major ways of leveraging, uh, Isaiah 53. One, they used it to demonstrate Jesus role as the Messiah. Uh, two, They said that the undeserved suffering or that uh, humble endurance that the suffering servant had brought about redemption. So that's that substitution and expiation. Uh, Three is it's an example of Christian living that we should imitate. Um, It can be an apologetic for Christianity as a whole. So not only is it Jesus as Messiah, but also just Christianity. Um, And then the last one is just the anticipatory nature of Christ coming again in glory. So there's documents kind of all over the place. Um, between Origen and um, Augustine and, and other church fathers talking about how they thought and read through Isaiah 53 that, at least personally, I found really helpful in, in kind of uh, illuminating of that text. If you're listening and you're wondering, you're thinking, wow. Yeah, Grant likes to read. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, you mentioned the the historian, you know, looking back and the kind of the historical historical perspective. I just heard a podcast recently um, featuring Molly Worthen. She's a University of North Carolina historian, and she just came to Christ. Mm. And when a historian comes to Christ, Hmm. it's it's a unique journey because they have the professional tools needed to sort through original documents and arguments like uh, church father reading and that stuff. And 
And um, I was so encouraged to hear that a modern historian just came to faith in Christ at a secular, secular university. Uh, to top it off, she grew up in Glen Ellen. Wow. Oh, and she cool. graduated from Glenbard West. Wow. Cool. Uh, oh, let's get her over here. Right. So There's it was a, it's a great. at Glenbard West now. Yeah. She, it was just hugely encouraging. Yeah, and, that is. And, and mean, it's, va- and to grant, I know that you did all this research this week. You, you do deep dives. It's a part of your wiring. Um, but it, it's very valuable um, that, that that work is done and that it's available uh, to the church. It's not something you said this week. Uh, what was your meal analogy? Oh, yeah. Like, um, okay, if I'm a chef and I'm making a pizza, let's say. Yeah. No one or very few people want to hear me talk about like the the experience origins. in the kitchen. Yeah, and the origins of like the olive oil and the tomatoes and all that. Like yeah. it has to be grown at this temperature. Like no one cares. They want to eat a delicious pizza. Right. So it's my job to find the best ingredients to make the pizza. So they have to inform the meal um, and be included. But and it, your point was a lot of the research that 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 a good pulpiteer does is left. In you know, back in the office, it's never brought to the dining room to right. use the or, metaphor, or it's included in the meal. You're not necessarily, but you're aware not aware of it. Of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Good. All right, all right. Last one. This is a random question. A former Archbishop of Canterbury recently said that assisted suicide is profoundly Christian because it helps ensure that a person does not suffer against their wishes. What are your thoughts on assisted suicide, morally and politically? Let me begin by saying, I, I love these types of questions, and I'm going to offer my perspective, um, but I, I haven't done a lot of deep digging on this issue, so, um, and could always learn and grow. So here are my thoughts. Um, that a, an Archbishop of Canterbury says that assisted suicide is profoundly Christian, and sorry, I'm just looking up this article. Yeah. So this is former archbishop in a break with the church. Okay. So it's I, not as a representative of, of the church. No. Yeah. So just... Well, yeah. that was the first point I was going to make, is that this statement is outside the historic position. And so I'm surprised that uh, a bishop of Canterbury, the Church of England, would say this. And he, he must be an outlier. And as Matt, you just discovered. But yeah. not only is he an outlier to the church, he's an outlier to the American Medical Association. So the AMA, a secular organization, opposes physician-assisted suicide and, and describes it as fundamentally incompatible with what it means to be a doctor. And so we've got the historic church position We've got the secular organization, the American Medical Association, uh, decrying it. So my position is not going to surprise anybody, I don't think, here. Morally, I think doctors are compelled by oath, quote-unquote, to do no harm. And assisting death seems contra-life. That's a brilliant statement, right? So assisting in death, I think just the name of it, suicide, is, is, um, tells us... <laughs> Where, where we should probably land on this, and that would be we're against suicide. Well, and even the reasoning, I mean, I want us to be compassionate, but the reasoning of in order to avoid suffering, I, I don't think that serves 
humanity well in general, that just the avoidance of suffering or the pursuit of comfort is the highest end. And I talked a little bit about that in my sermon actually yesterday too, um, probably because it's, uh, it's like the, the rock under my mattress type thing that uh, I come back to regularly. It, it really is a little bit of a disturbance for me, this concept that humans need or it's best for us to live in comfortable places, that suffering is something, is the worst possible thing we could be enduring. Um, at least in my own experience, and I've gone through some suffering, not, not as bad as others for sure, but um, it's, I haven't found it to be the thing that I need removed from my life the most. It's not fun, but um, saying that that is the reason people should be able to opt out, I, I, I just don't think that cares for people all that well. I think it's, it's coming from a skewed perspective. So I would agree. Politically, the goal of good government, so the, the question asker says, what do you think of it morally? And I, I, we're, we're, we think it's immoral. And then politically, what would it mean to govern? And, and for me, the goal of good governance is always to restrain evil, and I think this is a moral evil. And so we're to, I think good governance is to protect and preserve life, not to facilitate the end of life. And, and then you have all types of difficult questions. Like if, if the government were to green light this, and I think, you, I think there are five states to, right now which you can uh, participate in assisted, assisted, but who governs that? Like who decides? And now we have, we have humans working on a sliding scale arguably, you know, intervening and saying, no, your life is not worth living and your life is. And your suffering is without meaning and your suffering has meaning. Man, it sounds like we've just entered into the space that historically only God occupied. Am yes. I right? Yes. So biblically, uh, we see the scripture points us to the sanctity of life, to the imperative to live as God's image bearers, protect life, and to bring him glory even on our sufferings, this is what Grant was getting at. So, yeah. You know, I think this podcast is great. We get into a lot of stuff. But, um, but like, we shouldn't be teaching you what to think. We should be teaching you and instructing you and informing you on how to think. Mm -hmm. And when you want to know the question to something like this, go to the Bible, mm -hmm. go to the scriptures. I'm reading this quote from this, from this guy. So, uh, it looks like I mean, he's been out for a while. He, he was the, the head 1991 to 2002, right? So this guy says, it is profoundly Christian to do all we can to ensure nobody suffers against their wishes. That's what he says. Here's what the Bible says. <laughs> then he said, this is Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them, this is Jesus. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily mm -hmm. and follow me. Now, here's what Paul says in Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. There were instances where Paul and the apostles were beaten and they rejoiced. All right, but let me nuance That's this. Pretty crazy. You're not against palliative care, are you? That is no, no, no. This the is the care of comforting uh, and even medicating folks as they're suffering in end of life. Right. No. Yeah. No, I, no. I don't think that that's what this guy's talking about. No, he's talking this. about taking life to avoid yes. suffering. Yeah. And here's the part that gets me: uh, <laughs> that to ensure nobody suffers against their wishes. Who, 
who's he talking like suffering against their wishes yeah. like who wishes to suffer we like, don't it, normally wish to suffer n- no that would be we would no one would suffer at all ever if it were up to us right and if that were the case we would be very shallow uh, we would not live a, the human experience that yeah yeah we how if would, the goal how would we, was to escape all suffering oh it's a pretty superficial goal right That's, right it just it what he is saying i'm sure this dude has probably read and it's smarter than me right. and all of that but it seems to me that what he is saying is counter biblical at every turn there's a book by philip jenkins came out 15 some odd years ago titled the next next christendom and uh, Jenkins is a sociologist, and he just researches um, the impact of the early church and what made the earliest believers stand out in their culture. And it was, frankly, and, and he goes on to state, actually, the reason the early church grew, and if I remember correctly, Jenkins is not a, a believer himself, uh, but so his sociological, anthropological take on why the early church grew uh, does not include the Holy Spirit. We would certainly include the Holy Spirit, but he he looks just factually at what they were doing. And it was the Christians who were carrying, they were collecting babies who had been discarded. Yeah. And they they were taking into their house those with diseases and caring for people at the end of their lives. And so the church was growing through mercy ministries, things that no one else was doing in the ancient world. I actually think if we as a church... Uh, green light physician assisted suicide. We miss a lot of opportunity to minister the gospel mm-hmm. yeah. when we talk about cross caring. Yeah, yeah. I, I I can appreciate Jesus because he entered into our suffering according to Isaiah fifty three, mm-hmm. and if he never had, I don't. In practically speaking, I don't want to have anything to do with him. Yeah, be, because if if he can't enter our suffering, how can he speak to it? Right. Yeah. All right. All right, well, that's all the questions we have for you today. But if you have any further questions, comments, or concerns, don't hesitate. Text the Next Level Podcast, 630-474-6164. Our podcast is dedicated to answering listener questions on two levels, answering specific questions about last Sunday's sermon, and also general questions regarding broader topics within the Christian faith. We love God, and we wholeheartedly believe that Scripture is a primary means for getting to know Him. And it's our hope that this podcast extends the learning opportunity for all who want to know God better, like the Ethiopian eunuch, strengthening not only your faith, but my faith and our faith together. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the next level. Boom! Prophecy.